Okie doke. Welcome to the Good People Podcast. For each episode, we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of the Where Am I series, What Am I Wearing, Where Am I Eating, Where Am I Giving? And basically, what we do is we talk to people who give a damn. And today, I'm joined by my friend Jay Mormon, as usual, and also my friend Janae Sander. How are you guys doing? Doing Great. well. Very good. So, Janae, I uh, pulled your bio off of the, the Ball State website uh, and just copied and pasted it to my notes here. And uh, I'm not smart enough to understand some of it. So I'll read it, and you can kind of tell me what it means, and I'll edit it as I go, too. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. So Janae Sander is the director of the Ph.D. in School Psychology program at Ball State University. She's also a licensed psychologist. Uh, her expertise is in the intersection of emotional behavioral and learning concerns in children and adolescents. She's particularly interested in conducting research about evidence-based interventions uh, to reduce disproportionately, uh, see, I can't even read, disproportionality and address the educational and mental health needs of youth who come in contact with juvenile justice systems. Her emphasis is on positive and strengths-based methods using ecological systems framework her skills and research projects include topics related to consultation and interventions at the individual, family, classroom, or school level. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I think I almost got through it. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I need to work on uh, probably really simplifying that. That's a really long <laughs> I would never let my students get away with writing a sentence that long. Well, you know, you have to, in academia, it requires a little bit longer sentences, uh, words like disproportionality. True. Sure. Um, so I mean, she does have a PhD. You can't use little words anymore once you. No, no, you're supposed to. They, <laughs> they say the best writers and the most read scholars write at about a fourth grade level. So it's wow. Oh wow. To write more simply. I'm right there. You can actually, co- copy and paste your, um, you know, your writing into a, a website, and I'll tell you what grade level. Yeah. It is at. You know, it's interesting with, uh, with the Facing Project, um, which we talked about on here before some, but we'll have different volunteers who are writers for the projects and we'll ask people for bios. And often you can tell, like, um, people from higher education, their bios often are, are longer. Hmm. You know, mine will be like, Kelsey's part of the Facing Project. <laughs> <laughs> well. So what um, we heard your bio... What, how, what do you tell people that you do and specialize in? It's really about kids who have acting out issues and how do we help those kids and teenagers be more successful and how do we help the adults build better connections with them so that they can be less frustrated and have better relationships. It's really kind of about that. Yeah. And, and it, so right now, how is that going in your family and in Jay's family and my family? given what we're facing right now all this time together like how, how, are, how are you how are you guys holding up the sander household we're um we're pretty good actually i have um unusually um uh, my, my son is a senior okay so he's senior 2020 going through this as a senior in high school but he is an amazing person um he's been very his perspective on this whole situation has been very mature. I've been really proud of him. I think I'm a little bit more upset than he is about not having commencement. <laughs> so um, yeah, he's gotten online with his friends and some big Minecraft server and 
he just wants to be with his friends again uh, before they all scatter. But other than that, um, he, he's pretty chill about the whole thing. And my daughter, she's 13. Um, she has also been pretty happy to have like a little bit looser schedule and have some, uh, some downtime. And um, I will admit we have the luxury of enough space. My husband works at home anyway. He writes, um, he's working on virtual reality um, coding. So he's been working from home for several years now. So he has his own dedicated office um, and we have enough space where we aren't on top of each other too much, which definitely helps um, for us all to do what we need to do. No one interrupts my classes in, in uh, virtual format. So that's, I've been grateful for that, but it would be okay if they did. I just yeah. think before our, our call started here, when Jay and I were talking about, I was watching the matrix. It got me thinking about um, Chris's work and about how you can't catch the coronavirus. You know, <laughs> if you're in like VR. In virtual yeah. world. It's not a bad marketing angle for, for Chris. Yeah, so Kelsey, I, I mean, Janae is one of those people who's kind of a, um, a beacon of thought for me. And, and as we talked through and she and I were chatting just about what she was seeing out in the world, right? So she is connected with um, our uh, local Youth Opportunities Center um, and volunteers there and, and serves there. And, of course, through Ball State um, has a lot of other activities that um, are helping people, as she said, through so many different relationship situations, specifically uh, with youth. Um, but this situation, uh, I think lots of us are feeling it. And most of us, the way Janae said it, right? Because, uh, you know, our friends and the circle of people we're around are, are generally privileged people, right? So we have space and we have food. And um, But the, the system uh, is working for people and is consistently, uh, you know, been running, um, you know, for years and years and years for lots of, uh, lots of people who are not in that situation. And then we hit this unprecedented wall we have right here where people are quarantined. Um, public service has had to stop in, in many ways. Um, and we got talking about that. And I, I, it was an angle I hadn't thought of, right? I've been concentrating on, you know, how do you keep local restaurants and businesses going and, people that need food or people that are isolated, but, um, you know, not being not connected in like she is to this, these youth programs. I thought that was a, a, a interesting place to go next for us. Um, so with that said, Janae, I know you've, 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 you and I discussed this a little bit, but what, what are you seeing the effect on the social net and the social system for, uh, for youth and those um, that you serve? Well, I think for some of them, um, it's going to be really hard. So let's take the youth opportunity, for example. Um, you know, I'm not there right now. I'm a researcher. Um, I'm a data uh, person for them to help them um, monitor things. We have a big project with one of my colleagues um, that's starting up there, which is all on hold right now because we're not essential personnel. So, you know, we're taking a backseat for direct care of the, the kids is really the priority for them. And we're happy to just step out and not expose any of them to more germs that we might bring in or whatever. So, right. um, but the frontline staff, I know that the kids are, um, you know, when you're in a residential facility, um, no one ends up in a residential facility because things have gone well. Um, so there's usually a heartbreaking story behind whatever led to this decision um, at multiple levels, it's never an easy decision and never a, a first choice for people. 
um, for that option for kids, but it's usually the best choice given the other alternatives at the time um, for emotional reasons, behavioral reasons, safety reasons, um, maybe having being in foster care, not having a safe place to go to with other caring adults that you have had in your life for a long time. So um, when there are strained family relationships and then that adolescent is in a residential treatment facility, this situation has made it really hard like for family visits. Um, I know that the facilities are all going to virtual meetings for um, legal meetings, um, for what visits can, can be facilitated with virtual means, but it's still really hard. I mean, as you know, it's not the same to connect in virtual format as it is in person. Um, psychologists and therapists are moving to telehealth, um, doing virtual sessions, and that's been great because it may be better than nothing, but it's still not the same as in person. Yeah, it, it lacks that eye contact in a way that you can really hear and listen to someone in a way that is helpful. And are you seeing, I mean, I, I'm connected into um, some of the uh, government structure around courts through my business. And I know lots of courts are on, you know, like priority cases only. Um, you know, there is no court staff. Most of the judges have shut down um, courthouses. Are you seeing delays? And, you know, some of these kids are waiting on processing or next steps or, you know, to be uh, sent back into whatever care system they were in. And I would think a lot of that would be delayed or stopped right now. So they're in limbo a little bit, I would imagine. Um, I don't know. I don't have access to that information. I can tell you my impression of the people that are involved in situations like this want the best care and the best treatment for all the residents as soon as possible. Um, you know, reunification in a safe and loving home is is always the, the mm -hmm. goal. Um, so I, my personal hope is that no one is being stuck in limbo any longer because of court decisions. Um, because I personally, like the juvenile judges I know are very, very dedicated to try, trying as many creative ways as possible to help the kids be successful and um, be in a, be in a setting where they're going to get what they need. Right, right. That is how, however soon they can get there. Um, that's my impression of all the professionals I get the opportunity to work with, which is, why I do it actually because they're usually pretty great so yeah well and if they're serving in that role they do have a passion for yeah. um, serving that part of our population and helping those kids get back to to whatever a, a good normal or a new normal might be um, and then I know we talked a little bit about how um, you know the the sort of home visitation and maybe care for younger kids um, Obviously, you know, we we lost our refrigerator in the first week of this quarantine and we went and bought, I went and bought one, you know, FaceTiming with my wife in the middle of Lowe's with a mask on, um, but they wouldn't deliver it into the house, right? So there's lots of services that you are not allowed to or people are not going into people's homes. Um, have, have you seen or had any experience in what's going on in that side of the social services I've, I've just heard some um, friends and colleagues who are a little bit concerned, I would say, for some kids where you can't be more confident that they're in a safe place. Like if they're young, if they're too young to talk to you in virtual format, let's say they're an infant or a toddler and, yeah. um, you know, being in the room, being in the house, being in the same room with the, 
with a young child um, in person always tells you so much more than you could ever glean from a phone call or a virtual format. So I think that there's a lot of um, concern about families um, or care situations where maybe there aren't enough resources emotionally, financially, food security wise, all of that, that I think is probably really, really hard for a lot of um, kids and the adults trying to care for them the best they can. Yeah, that's hard. Just the level of stress that this adds parents, um, you know, how, what are they doing for childcare? Can they even go to work? The financial stress, can they afford to feed their kids? Uh, you know, what 50%, I think it's over 50% of uh, students in our county or in our city school system, uh, I think it's even more than that, rely on those free meals. And so what, you add that layer of stress. And I have heard, um, even from a friend in Kenya who recently shared, talked about how domestic abuse um, was on the rise at this time because you have people spending a lot more time together and there's no place to really seek outside refuge or just, um, you know, the more time you spend with people, sometimes it leads to more stressful situations. Certainly in, in our household, thankfully nothing escalates to the point of you know, a big situation, but still, you know, people get grumpy and um, you add all those other layers of stress. Are there any, um, have you read any reports or and is there anything in, our, in history that has shown like a time like this, uh, how it actually impacts uh, folks in that way? Or is it more just kind of um, just stories that we're hearing right now? Yeah, I th- I feel like we haven't seen anything quite like this where we, where you can't go around other people. I mean, we need other people. Our social support network is one of the most important ways that we thrive. And without having access to that and without having with kids not having access to other caring adults that they may have be seeing at school because they can't be at school. Um, you know, it's really hard. Parents aren't aren't parents are super stressed if they have young children, especially if they even have a job where they can work from home, having to work at home with a three-year-old is, oh my gosh, you know, it's really hard. So, um, you know, I think everyone's stress level, um, when that is what you have to deal with right now with more demands emotionally, less available supports, um, less available, you know, like access to food, access to like, even just going outside. Sometimes you can't go outside because, well, we've had bad weather, but, um, you know, even on a nice day, like the trail will be too crowded and you shouldn't really go there. Yeah. Yeah. There's no real relief. I mean, clothes, like, I mean, you can't, kids can't go play on a playground, you know, like how do you entertain and have be okay when they can't really go play? That's an impossible scenario. Yeah. And uh, do you think kids are reacting to this different from a psychological standpoint from adults? I mean, I know the the situations are different, but, you know, kids react to things. Of course, they're very strong and hardy and and make it through things like this. But what how do you think they're different from how maybe the three of us and our spouses are reacting? Um, One of the reasons I actually work with kids and adolescents is because they are so amazingly resilient. If they have just some of the right access, like something that they need and someone helps them get it, they really make 
I find that they make more of it than an adult who was given the same thing, right? Mm. Just find them naturally. Um, they'll kind of get what they need, whether they get it in a way you like it or not. You know, like if they need attention, they're going to get it one, one way or another. If they need to feel more sense of a power or control, like they'll do it in a way that might be annoying to adults, but they're getting what they they'll need. They'll get it. And I really... Um, appreciate that about kids. I think kids are a little bit more creative and they don't have as many rules or um, they're not as set in their ways as adults. So um, kids will respond based on what they have and they'll make, I find that kids make more with less than adults do. So, Mm -hmm. but the adults that they're around that they're stuck with, um, you know, if those adults are um, depressed themselves right now, um, super stressed or completely unavailable, um, that will definitely have a pretty big developmental impact, which will create more needs after this is over, maybe for that young person to heal. Right. Yeah. The after, the after of this whole thing is, is a, it's a whole other unknown, I think, you know, and we're constantly talking in this house when the when the number of cases dips enough, uh, despite what our idiot in chief says, um, when when the number dips enough for us to feel like it's safe to, you know, go to fifty percent normal, seventy five percent normal, all the way to a hundred, um, you know, what are we going to find out about what's been happening and what else is going to be needed on the other side of this that we don't yet know? Right? Uh, there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of there could be PTSD. Um, absolutely there will be there will from be from some of this trauma. yeah there will be trauma there's trauma happening and it's it's trauma that people don't know is happening and might not even understand that it's happening um that that's what it is um for even some time to come like yeah because it's secret and and behind the closed doors that no one can see or that people are in this survival mode and just sometimes you don't really understand what's happened until you're out of it again um, so even just processing, sometimes you, don't, you need a certain level of resources to even process it. Yeah. I've heard a few people talk about it as, <clears throat> um, since day one, it's felt like uh, this sort of, um, compiled grief. Grief is the word I heard that kind of stuck with me. There's lots of words for this, but you're grieving so many things, right? You're grieving what you thought life was going to be like. You're grieving normalcy or grieving the events you missed, um, and um, that builds up. And a number of my friends, I've probably, I don't know, four or five close to me I've had, say, including my wife, say, I know I'm going to break down at some point. Mm-hmm. Right? It's this sort of, uh, I'm, it, this emotion that's been sitting there in this sort of, because, you know, we're not in a war. There's not bombs being dropped. We're all panicked and in our basements and hiding from invaders or something as blatant as that. But there's this whole other level of anxiety that's there and you can't do anything about it. You can't run. You're just sitting there with it. And, um, you know, I know there's probably techniques to deal with that, but people are going to react to that in different ways. It's it's so fascinating because it's like it's, uh, you know, we're talking about the the, there's no bombs falling. But when you read about the uh, bombing of, of London, uh, the air raids and how um, that really brought people together and people were um, more connected and crime went down and, you know, we're all in this together and, and you, 
you hear people interviewed that then they kind of miss that time when they all felt like they were one. Um, yet in this, we're, it's all this collective action, but we're just like, everybody stay away from each other. So you'll wonder if those positive effects of a collective action, um, those positive social connections are, are, not, are not going to be there. Um, as, a, as a psychologist, when we're in this, like, you know, as you're talking, I'm like, um, you know, am I experiencing trauma? Are there questions I should be asking myself or, or for my kids? Um, how do we try to care for ourselves in this moment or uh, examine ourselves to see how we're doing? Do you have any tips or tricks? I think it's about in the moment. I mean, we can't change the big picture. Um, And there's like simple things that adults can do just on their own. Like one of the most important things, like for adults who live with children, right? One of the most important things we can do is just be available to them because that helps them feel safe. Um, Even if you don't have enough to eat, if you can be emotionally present, it like that's way better than, you know, just being unavailable and shutting down yourself, you know, like it will help, you know, it will help so much. So um, sometimes, you know, if it does get complicated, um, if people have a trauma history themselves, and then there's this new big, huge stressor, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to, to handle it. But um, for in any given moment, um, the more grounded and centered, um, just mindful of what, you know, sometimes you can't do anything else except be here and take a breath. And, you know, sometimes that's plenty. Sometimes that's all you need. And so just taking a breath with someone else, you know, if you're in a space together with a kid, you know, um, you know, giving them a hug if they want one and if they're okay with that and that's the kind of relationship you have, you know, I will say I don't force hugs on children, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think that's a good idea. Um, but just having that, just being together. Um, so for some families, I'm, I'm imagining that this might be a really good time where they've actually been home um, forcibly, but have been home together and maybe making the most of it and doing things together that they haven't done in a long time or wish they had had more time for before um, and were unable to. Um, so I'm hoping that that's really happening for a lot of families, but I'm sure some other families like, um, you know, if a parent is struggling or a caregiver is struggling with, with something internally for themselves, um, you know, it just is more difficult to be emotionally available and present for, um, you know, a young person. So. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I've, I've watched the kids stuff is the most interesting to me and I've been watching the various social media and we did a, uh, um, a FaceTime call with friends last night and their um, youngest son out of nowhere started doing painting. Oh. Like, well, I knew you'd like that Janae because Janae <laughs> is an artist and uh, really paints some amazing work. Uh, but yeah, he, he all out, out of nowhere started making these, this artistic uh, expression um, through this quarantine time and neighbors have been buying his paintings because they're wow. really good. Very cool. But, but again, you know, sports have slowed down. He, he plays, he and his brother play a lot of sports. You know, there's not a lot of other activities, right? So they're home and all of a sudden he found this outlet and he's been using it and his parents have been, um, you know, supportive and loving about what he's been doing. But um, it's really neat that he found this in this time frame, and it's a coping mechanism for sure. Right. 
I love the meme that's online. It's like uh, kids in kids in 2019, and it shows them playing Xbox or, you know, sitting on their phones, and then they say kids during quarantine and they're all in their driveways playing basketball and doing chalk and stuff. And it's true. If you look out in our neighborhood, I don't think on a Saturday like this, you would have seen as many kids out, but right now I can look down the street and I can see kids all over the place, either in walks or out in their yards doing things. Um, so like you said, in the right environment, um, you know, this is bringing out good in, in so many people. It can. It can. And I think that the dividing line that I worry about um, that I spend my time kind of thinking about, like the disproportionality issue, right? So the kids who have privileged are th- were those kids who were overscheduled, who yeah. were in sport five days a week and their parents are, you know, sitting up at in a soccer field all weekend, every weekend, you know, like those are the super privileged families, right? They're probably really getting the big breath of relief from not having so much going on. Um, right. As, a, as a, a, a relief for at least a few weeks, maybe not indefinitely, but at yeah, least yeah. a while. Um, but the kids that, you know, were unsupervised and didn't have those positive connections weren't part of organized adult supervised activities. Um, you know, now they're a home, home um, and they may not have, um, you know, well, you have to have art supplies to be able to do some kinds of, I mean, you could do a lot with just a pen, a pen and pencil and a piece of paper, but some yeah. people don't really have that laying around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. there's a huge split in who is going to have access to a lot of easy coping, uh, straightforward coping, enjoyable coping and, and families and kids who don't. So. Yeah. And does, and, and watching this, I know it's a, a lot of contrast. That, that is certainly one thing that this has done is brought contrast between um uh, socioeconomic levels of our country, especially, I'm sure it's true in others. Um, but you know, in healthcare and health and human services, all those things that seem to, to be there for, um, those that need it. Um, some of those things we've noticed because of this, they're in contrast to what we thought was happening. I don't know that that's necessarily true for people like you or, or maybe, Kelsey and I, or people were around, but for a lot of people, it's like, oh, I didn't know that those things didn't work for those people, or I didn't know that that wasn't there, or I didn't know that, you know, those home visits wouldn't be taking place, or, you know, whatever that sort of, you know, glazed over privileged view of the world looks like, um, this has pointed those things out. So do you see a lot, do you see a lot of need for change coming out of this that maybe we'll be motivated to make? Um, And what might some of that be? It's a really good question, Jay. Um, I, um, I've been aware of these issues for quite a while. Um, I actually, with my students, um, you know, we look at disproportionality and, um, I participate with some, um, like local community groups, um, where we're intentionally looking at, you know, what is happening that, you know, youth of color are having more negative things happen to them. Um, how can we, promote equity um, and reduce disproportionate rates of health problems, disproportionate rates of um, discipline referrals and, you know, juvenile justice involvement. So I have this saying, like, um, I'm not going to admire the problem anymore because mm-hmm. I'm aware of the problem. People have been admiring these problems for 30 years. Um, and, and the numbers haven't really changed that much, you know? So it's, I don't know what it's going to take. Um, I think it's going to take more people 
maybe more people will be aware um, because you can't really change a problem you don't know about. Um, and at the same time, I know that there are people working on it and trying very hard. And it's actually just a really complicated problem yeah. that is system-wide, society-wide, it's everywhere. It's in all of our systems. So it's not even just like in one place, like, oh, if we could fix it in schools, you know, we can, it would fix it in healthcare. Like, well, no, those are related problems from some of the same systemic inequities that have been happening for centuries, really. Right. So I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, no, it, well, it is a, it is a complex one. You know, it's interesting. I sent Kelsey an article this morning, the Pope, uh, and I don't know the specifics of this, I'm going to read more about it, but the Pope sent a letter to world leaders saying it's time for universal basic in income, which we've talked about on this podcast in the past, right? Um, so that, you know, some of the, some of these places where you find out that, uh, you know, the people that are working hourly jobs, even the United States, or, or don't have a job or have recently become unemployed, like the seven, eight million or whatever it is right now, um, that there is something there to, to keep care of them. Um, but like you said, it exists in emergency rooms, it exists in, in schools, in, you know, um, uh, almost every it, food shortages um, or moving to food, they call them food deserts, right? Where you live out so far away from somewhere that getting food is difficult. Um, that's all impacted by your ability to, to move um, and uh, create change for yourself. I had a little bit of experience with uh, with that system, not as a not as a kid, uh, but as a mentor uh, that I think is somewhat somewhat relevant to um, maybe personalize a little bit about how someone kind of gets in, in the system and how how frustrating it was for me to then to see it. And it's one of those moments where you kind of recognize the privilege of your own life. So I was a, a mentor through Big Brothers and Big Sisters and. Uh, matched with a, a young a boy of eight years old. I think we started hanging out um, maybe three, four years, more than that, five years maybe. Um, you know, his situation was that his mom worked evenings, so he was always home by himself. Um, and his older brother um, was is on the autism spectrum, and so he had services and people taken to different places. So my little brother often was on his own in town and like any young teenage boy is going to get into some trouble. And so he was walking through a neighborhood with a buddy who got into someone's car, pulled out a backpack. There was a laptop in it. The police came, got them, took them. And suddenly he's in, you know, in the system. And I think like, if that would have been me walking with one of my friends, uh, also um, he uh, is a person of color and, and I'm, you know, check all the boxes of privileges uh, in many ways, and including being a white guy. Um, and so he ended up in the system. And um, I, where I, my parents probably would have hired a lawyer or posted, I don't even know the terms, bail or bond, whatever. And uh, I would have probably not spent a night in, in kid jail. That's not the right term for it either. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, where he he did get in there, and then he was lucky that there was a place for him to go. Um, but when he was there, also in in the um, uh, you know he met other kids that were there as well, and started to form relationships with other kids that were in these similar situations. And so then he became more friends with them. And then that just once I felt like once 
the gravity of that got him that kind of set him on this path that he wasn't on before. And that was when the system was running smoothly without a financial collapse, without a uh, quarantine happening. Um, and I just, I, it was such a head scratcher for me because I was like, if I was him, I would have not spent, I would have been home that evening and I would have not been in that much trouble. And so it was so much more of a gravitational force for him than it would have been for me because of the privilege that I uh, grew up with. And, and it was frustrating to see that. So I can only imagine all the stories that you have and all the things that you've seen. Um, in, in good times, what, what are the most frustrating parts of the, of the system? Oh, gosh. Um, okay, I, I could talk about this one because I published um, a qualitative study about this story. Um, so from my perspective, it's when the systems all align in a way that is harder for families, even though the families know the, that the kids need help. Um, so for example, um, this one boy, um, he was um, from a Latino family, and he had older siblings who had been involved in the juvenile justice system at that time. And so the family was in a small community. The, the community law enforcement knew the older brothers. And um, in our schools, there's resource officers who, you know, by and large, you know, people become resource officers because they want to keep the community safe. There's not like, you know, especially if they're working in a school building with children, they know generally speaking, that's an altruistic motive from from the beginning and at the same time um, police officers and school resource officers aren't included in special education uh, student information meetings right so this particular boy um, had an, an, uh, an individualized education plan he had special education services he had a pretty high trauma history um, his Early in his life, um, there was domestic violence. His mother um, was able to get out, which was amazing. But this boy and his older siblings had all been um, quite severely traumatized by witnessing domestic violence and, uh, and being victims of um, you know, parental physical abuse. Um, so he had pretty severe trauma symptoms. One of the most reliable triggers for this particular uh, boy was if you were to touch him, he would have a trauma response, right? So, um, but instinctually when you see, um, so here's what happened to this family. This boy was in the, just at school, regular day, um, had had a bad experience with law enforcement, partly because of this domestic violence and his family's other interactions. He did not view law enforcement as someone you go to when you're in trouble, but someone that is maybe scary and maybe will arrest you and take you away for no reason, right? When he was little, that's what happened and he didn't understand. So this is his impression of law enforcement as just what he had witnessed in his life, not any one person, nothing like that. But his personal experience was that law enforcement was scary. Um, and not safe. So um, he was just walking down the in the school building in his elementary school, doing totally normal thing, wasn't in any trouble. Um, and a school resource officer, in a helpful way, went over and was like, you know, hey, what what are you doing, son? You know. And the the boy ran into a bathroom because he just was like, didn't want to be around a law enforcement person, right? And of course, what is a law enforcement officer going to do? They're going to follow them into the bathroom, right? I mean, they're going to pursue because like, 
Well, one, you shouldn't really run from a lot, fourth and off third me, but at the same time, it was for this child, it was frightening, right? But the law enforcement officer had no idea. So there's this complete lack of awareness on both sides about what's going on with the other person. Um, they're just doing what they both do, right? Not intending to trigger any big significant event. So this kid goes in the bathroom. The law enforcement officer is like trying to be helpful, like, you know, hey, why don't you go back to class? You know, have, I'll walk with you. He's trying to be helpful, right? Reaches into the stall to touch the kid and the kid has a complete meltdown based on trauma, like feeling fearful. He lashed out, kicked and hit the police officer, which is a felony, right? So um, the kid ended up getting charged um, with assaulting an officer um, because that's what the policies are in a lot of places, not just in this particular place. And, um, but the, it's all sad, but it makes, this is a, a good example, and I know this kind of thing happens pretty routinely for a lot of students, um, in, a, in, a, in a situation where law enforcement doesn't understand the developmental or the emotional and behavioral needs of the student. It happens with kids with autism um, a lot as well, um, just because, you know, how law enforcement is trained and how mental health professionals are trained are, are not the same. And some, sometimes there's some overlap. Um, they have to be trained in certain things, but sometimes they just wouldn't know. So in this particular student's um, individualized education plan, they had a behavior plan for this boy. And it was said very clearly, like, under no circumstances should you ever touch this child. Like, you need to use your just verbal coaxing if you need to be redirecting this child. Do not lay your hands on this child as part of, you know, behavioral interventions of any kind. But the law enforcement officer, you know, they don't read those. They're not part of those meetings. They're not part of that team. So not typically anyway. So um, anyway, this kid ended up in juvenile detention. Um, then the mother had even more legal issues and now her youngest was now involved in the system. And now this whole family has this whole stigma. And so all the while she had been trying to advocate for, you know, why is this, why was this charge even filed in the first place. I don't know why it was pursued um, because, you know, a lot of times you would have a charge initiated, but then it would get dropped. Um, but it, it, it stuck and they proceeded with, with the system. And I, I think maybe the system, some individuals in the system were trying to help and get the family more services, which is again, another unfortunate side effect of like families who have lower resources. Sometimes the court system is the only way they can get court mandated mental health services um, if they can't get it another way. So it's like you need system involvement, but at the same time, it's a really hard, high price to pay because now you have this um, reputation, you have this um, word gets out in a small community about, you know, oh, that family. Um, so the stigma gets to be really hard to overcome. And then the, the judgments, and then once you're in the system, um, again, there's a risk of meeting more people who are um, maybe going to be doing things that, that they shouldn't be doing either. So, yeah, it's a, a beginning of a spiral at, at some level, yeah. right? Spiral, right. And it's hard to get off the track. And that's, that's the part that's heartbreaking is when it's, mm. you can see it happening and you can see the family doing everything they can to fight it. The parent trying to wrangle whatever resources that she could get her hands on to help her child. Um, she was a very strong advocate, very informed, but she just felt completely disempowered and overlooked and um, helpless as the system just did what the system does. 
Yeah, and you have to and you have to think, Janae, that situation let's say that situation happened, you know, as we kinda if I relate it back to where we are right now, um those that system and those resources, the availability of people, everything's probably slowed down. Yeah. Would have slowed down in this process. So this this person who was already um, traumatized by so many things and then traumatized by the system and traumatized by the situation, the effect of that continued, would have continued much longer, right? I'm sure there's many cases of that happening right now, not necessarily even locally, just across the country, where people can't get access to those resources. So those resources are going to be available in three weeks rather than in a few days and, you know, whatever those things might be. But it, it does it does get us to a place where we can we can see where some of these things need improvement um, and it highlights more of these people that need help right and coming out of this perhaps that's a place where we can volunteer or we can work or we can help to to you know be part of these solutions um, that are becoming so noticeable now in light of this one specific event yeah I kind of wonder if um some some kids will be less stressed because they don't have all the demands of school like in this particular situation none of that would happen if they hadn't been if school was shut down none of it would even happen the kid would probably be perfectly fine hanging out with mom at home honestly yeah yeah Um, but a lot of kids who are having a hard time in school have you know difficulties with you know managing their behavior managing their emotions and acting out with frustration maybe trying to get out of like they don't have the academic skills so they're gonna kind of do some annoying or maybe even unsafe behaviors to get out of that situation. Um, they won't have those demands. So they're probably feeling some relief. Yeah. Um, so they might actually have their stress go down for a, a, some number of students who are not, uh, who don't enjoy school. They're probably yeah. relief. Um, depends on where your depends yeah. on where your stress factors come from, I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How could we? Uh, how do you see effectively like community members that have um, tried to help fill in some of the gaps, or what are some organizations that people could consider giving to, whether it's the resources or to, to volunteer? What are ways that you feel like are effective and um, helpful? Um, well, I do. I do appreciate um, my work and my collaborations with the Youth Opportunity Center. Um, they have been very generous partners in um, looking for ways to improve services for their students and uh, making use of my skills to help them meet some of their goals. Um, I do have happily volunteered there. I love working there with them, actually. And that's and that's locally in Muncie, Indiana, right, Janae? Indiana, yeah. But there are probably similar groups, I would imagine, all over the country yes. that are doing similar work, yeah. yeah. That, I mean, I would say, um, you know, things like Boys and Girls Club, things like um, CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates, they need people to volunteer to um, help our communities look after more kids. Um, by knowing them and being their advocate over a longer period of time when other things are breaking down and not working for those kids to keep them safe. Having another consistent adult who's just there for looking out for that kid to kind of take in and inform the courts, um, that can be really helpful. Um, And you don't have to be a, you know, you get training, but you don't have to be a mental health expert. You could, as long as you're willing to go through their training and show up, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of showing up um, consistently, um, you know, volunteering for after school help, or um, if you have flexibility in your day to go 
when schools are open. Um, homework help, being available as a tutor, um, even just helping organize summer activities for kids. Um, all those armies of coaches and little league and summer programs, you know, all those adults who volunteer all those hours and hours, um, those people are so important. So I'd say, you know, even maybe especially even um, when it's not your kid on the team, you know, like so that you could be there for somebody else who their families maybe don't have the resources to be able to be that positive. And it's really kind of just about showing up and being consistent. Um, that yeah. the more adults, the more the kids have someone like that in their life. Um, I mean, that's why, you know, big brothers, big sisters, you know, that's, that's why they do what they do is exactly that. So. Yeah. It's you know, as, as a big eye for me, it was like, uh, feel unqualified or was to do eventually just come realize that it's, it's time and proximity, yeah. right? It's, it's just the relationship over time that you're not going anywhere that you're consistently there. Um, and, uh, even organizations I've evolved, that I've volunteered with where I've been volunteering with, uh, adults, you're trying to help adults. Um, I was sometimes, um, humbled to realize how, um, much they felt connected to me, mm -hmm. you know, like where something would happen and I would get a, I would get a phone call and I'm like, wow, like on my list of people I would call in this situation, like, you know, that's, uh, I can't believe I made their list. Uh, but then it makes you realize how little social, like, uh, what they call that, um, social capital support. or social support or, or uh, resources that folks have. Uh, but one thing's for sure that kids often have the least of that. And kids are uh, the ones that suffer the most in society. Often they're in, well, there's poverty or access to food and, um, and, and just to kind of wrap things up, maybe with this, there, there's a lot of talk about when do we reopen as a society or the economy or we can go out again. And, and in that conversation, I hear a lot about jobs and the unemployment. Um, but, you know, and maybe it's just because I haven't seen it or I haven't looked for it. But it's, it seems to me I haven't heard a lot about, about, about kids in terms of kids, especially that are receiving extra support or uh, don't have the support that they necessarily need, whether that's food or family or, um, do, you, do you feel like that's being worked into the conversation at all in terms of whether we open up or is it, am I missing it or is it, are you seeing it anywhere? I think the people who work with kids are thinking about this a lot. I think all the people who work already with kids are looking for creative ways to stay connected. I mean, I know teachers that are working into the evenings because the kid didn't sign in at school that day, you know, they'll just call them and try to get a hold of their family and keep trying until, you know, just to, just to maintain those connections. So I think the people who, who do that work, are already doing that and trying to do that and thinking ahead for that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily part of the economic driving force of getting our, you know, public schools just cost money, right? <laughs> so we, we don't, we don't think about that way, but the, the service providers, um, all the teachers and administrators who, who do what they do because they love working with kids are, are probably already just trying to figure that out right now um and doing what they can to to 
keep the kids connected to each other. Um, that's what I'm doing as an instructor right now is me staying connected with my students and helping my students stay connected with each other. So we still have a sense of community. Um, you know, I think a lot of school building and service providers who work with kids are, are probably just naturally doing that because that's what they do. Yeah, my sister-in-law is a teacher in um, a kind of a struggling economic area where I grew up um, that's even become more struggling through the years. And I know when she sends her kids home for the summer or even the weekend, like she's worried about those kids. And so for, for her not to be there for the school, not to be for, there for them now in this really hard time, it's, um, you know, if, if I've, I don't know, I feel like it's uh, something that I've, you've educated me more, but I, I should be worried even more um, about this. Thanks for adding to my stress. Um, but I, I wonder if it's not like we're not thinking about it enough as a society as a whole, because I certainly don't hear, hear that uh, as much as I would, as we certainly should be hearing about it. Is there uh, anything else that you would like to add or touch on before we head out? Uh, I don't know. I appreciate um, you hearing about some of these other things I care about. I just kind of rattle around with my, my bubble of other people who are like-minded. I get, I like getting to talk about it. People who don't think about this all the time. So maybe more people will think about it and uh, get to know a kid they wouldn't have gotten to know in a way that can be a helpful, positive, you know, long-term safe relationship. That would be awesome. Go volunteer somewhere. (laughs) Here's some resources for anybody who's listening who might need some help. There's a national domestic hotline. It's 1-800-799-7233. The TTY number is 1-800-787-3224. You can also find them at thehotline.org. You can also text them, text all capital letter, letters, L-O-V-E-I-S, love is, 22522. Great. Jay, anything else? No, that was great. Thank you, Janae. It, um, it certainly did highlight some things for me when we were talking before that uh, brought this forward. So um, I, it, I think it will. I think uh, people are going to pay attention to this. And I think it was helpful to you, uh, helpful that you educated us in, in such a way. So thank you for that and spending some of your Saturday with us. Yeah, Janae, thank you so much for all that you do for our community and, and fighting for, for, for the kids uh, and our, the future for all of us. And for that definitely you're good people so thanks for coming on the podcast my pleasure thank you all right kelsey that was janae what did you think what did you uh, what did you take out of that oh really great i mean I, I can't believe that there's some things i just haven't haven't thought about in terms of the current crisis um you know i have a son who's on the autism spectrum so i've thought about families that have a kid who's not getting resources that they had before but then just to think about every, every, um, you know, every kid that is at a moment in their life where they're struggling or they need some extra help or like, or have entered the system. Like, I mean, it yeah. that didn't go away. It's still there. No. And it's multiple places in that system too. So it can be something where you're getting, uh, you know, psychiatric assistance. Um, maybe there's some sort of, you know, criminal issue maybe it's just care and relief from a condition or a problem um but yeah without being able to visit homes or you know a lot of government organizations are shut down or on essential staff you know those those safety nets those support systems for people are on pause and uh, i wouldn't have thought about it either 
Janae has a lot of experience with, and she mentioned this, the Youth Opportunity Center in Muncie, Indiana. Um, and so she, she helps them run that organization. And I know she's seen a lot of things. Um, and just talking to her about that, I started thinking, wow, I wouldn't, those parts of this, I wouldn't have considered. I was thinking about kids going to school and, you know, all those schools, a center for a lot of that, but the Youth Opportunity Center certainly is a whole other side of the and struggle. And I've visited uh, there before. I had a, um, um, a person I was friends with, mentoring, who uh, was in there when there was no other place for them to, him to go. And, right, um, right. and it's a great uh, organization. Um, mm-hmm. Because if, without that, there's just kind of like, I think there's like a, I think I said this term in the show, and I don't think it's appropriate, but like a kid jail, you know, it's, and, and, and the YOC is like a campus and they have teachers that come in and they have uh, basketball courts and they have, actually, they, yeah. I think the YOC still has my Scrabble board, which Annie is, I went, I took my Scrabble board and never got I, it back. <laughs> and I never it got it back. So I surely should get a tax credit for that donation. And it was an expensive yep. Scrabble board. Yeah, you should have asked yeah. for a receipt. Uh, yeah, I, I, it, it is. And I've, you know, they've, um, I've been part of some, you know, different events for them over time. And it is kind of a, what I like about it, it's such a holistic view of the development of and, um, you know, helping someone that's a minor, um, you know, grow to a, a, a more opportunistic adulthood so i think they treat kids in a very holistic manner despite whatever their situation is right and there's lots of them but i don't know what they're doing now i don't know i'm sure there's there's lots of things that are people are trying to struggle to get through but um a there's, lot of those there's things have stopped several different cottages there uh, i mean someone could be there just because you know their parents can't take care of them and they have nowhere right. else to go or Right, to the right. to the point where someone has maybe been uh, like as a victim of sex trafficking could be there. Um, that's one of the things that shocked me. You know, like sex trafficking happens everywhere, and as as much as we like to think that it probably doesn't happen in our small town, it does. And it happens. Like it does. the YOC, they can see that um, you know regularly. So they have a whole spectrum of needs that they're meeting and just because a virus pops up on the world stage and shuts down the world doesn't mean yeah. that these kids aren't so these things um yeah some, charities i do wonder that, charities yeah. in total yeah oh something else that really uh stood out to me was after we stopped recording uh i was kind of sharing a volunteer experience that i had and how uh, a person with the that was being served by the organization i was volunteering with um like made a decision that I was like oh man like why did they make that decision and, and led them down this you know and it was really hard for me and it was almost kind of the point where I was like I'm done um you know I got here I'm you know, trying to help the best I can and um it seemed like they really weren't interested in and in making like what seemed like a pretty easy right decision um mm-hmm. or not making the wrong decision and they made it and so um, I shared a little with Janae about that situation. She's like, well, you know, you have to think about everything that led them to that point too. So, you know, I feel like I get to the point where I, I have, um, you know, empathy is something that I feel it comes relatively natural to me, or I'm, I'm, the more you become aware of different situations, you become more empathetic just because you have experiences and you've met people who've 
face those circumstances. But what kind of jumped out to me, what Janae said is that I don't know if I, I have empathy for the person now, um, mm-hmm. but you know, I need to have empathy for what, what the words, their circumstances are growing up or all the things that led them to that decision, which I felt like was like a, just an obvious no brainer, like don't do this thing. And they, they did it. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like yeah, that kind I, of gives me empathy yeah, for the whole I mean, person throughout time. Yeah. And of course I was, you know, I was uh, along for some of that ride with you. And um, as I observed you and Annie working through some of those things and, I will say, I, you know, I think the word empathy is the right one, right? Which is, is to, to care about and, and to understand, try to understand and, um, you know, share what you can with that person, at least from an experience standpoint. However, I do think it's okay one-on-one. I always say this, we have to look, we have to look for greater causes of things and the socioeconomic reasons that crime and all these other things exist. But one-on-one, I think it's okay to do what you did, which is, look, I have done a lot to get to this point for you. I cannot go any further. I mean, you, yeah. uh, that's just reality of it. And I think uh, you, you did so much there. I know it's, it is hard and frustrating, but you did walk away from it empathetic. You were just worn out with it. And I think that's okay. And, you know, we said it early on in the podcast, doing ch- real charity work is hard, right? It, it's, it's not a fun d- and that money does come from these things, but it's not a fun dance fundraiser. That's not the way real charity works, right? Real charity is hard. It's dirty. It rarely closes itself up perfectly and ends a problem. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work and it rarely just solves a problem, checks a box. So I think you experienced that, but I think it's okay to feel like that ended in a way that was frustrating for you and you should have been frustrated with it, right? Empathy and, and, care you provided more for that person than most people would have yeah i mean i I sometimes think about like the and i don't know if we talked about i think i wrote about this somewhere about the the warm glow of volunteering and i think that's come (laughs) that's that's some bullshit you know what i mean like you're (laughs) you know (laughs) like uh I, i think about the warm glow of something like that of like i remember as a kid uh having to go to church and then you're in church doing this thing you didn't want to do. And then you got out and you're like, feel like you have complete freedom of your day and you're not stuck there. And just, you know, a weight has <laughs> been lifted from your shoulders because you got to eat some donuts and church was over. Like, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a warm glow. <laughs> but to me, that was, that was a warm glow or like piano lessons, like a piano lesson that I hadn't practiced for. And yep. uh, I, I get through it and I'm like, whew, that's a, for me, like that's a bit of a warm or like a run, you know, the runner's high and for yeah. volunteering in the most meaningful ways that I volunteered and really gotten engaged, which you know, we talked about in the episode proximity over time with someone. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that there's a moment where you're just like this, this warm glow. I mean, you're, you're glad that you're yeah, doing is, it. And you feel connected. I, will, I love people. doing it. And as soon as I finish filling these buckets at the food pantry, that hunger is not going to exist in this town anymore. That it's never like that. Right. I think maybe if you're, you're not, you're, you're lacking awareness and that's a superficial, <laughs> feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's a super, you might be given in a superficial way. If you're like, you know, yeah. I volunteered for an hour and I have a warm glow. Like, yeah, right. 
Yeah. Then you're not seeing the problem for what it is. Yeah. Because you yeah, should feel right. almost an end of a weight. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Maybe. Right. M more. Go more weight. <laughs> right. More weight, probably. So that's a good segue to people should read your book. Where am I giving? There you go. That's and what you talk about, about this in depth. Yep. So I can make some money and I can give it away. That's right. There you go. Everybody help Kelsey out. <laughs> perfect, perfect ending. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, but the, to get back to Janae though, too, about I you know, realize that there are there are circumstances uh, and individuals, especially kids, uh, that are in circumstances that I hadn't thought about in all of this, and I'm glad I know about it. I'm glad that I'm more aware of it, um, but. You know, it's not necessarily a, a feeling of like uh, the warm, the warm, I'm not experiencing the warm glow with that knowledge. And plus it's right now, it's really hard to figure out how to do anything about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it was more disturbing to me when she and I talked about it off mic before I, I told you I wanted to have her on. Like it was just a blind spot for me because yeah. my kids are all, my kids are all here and they're fine. I don't know. I don't Right. Like everybody, you just don't think about it. Or I mean, you, I've never you've had experienced experiences with much experiences with those type of systems or people right. in those circumstances. Yeah. And like, you know, I had so small experiences and still my mind didn't go there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'm glad she, uh, she filled us in. It'd be, it's going to be something I'll be watching now when I uh, talk on the, or I listen to the news as well as I read the news. And then I know people on the board there. I want to, reach out to um, one of them I talked to today that um, to see which ways um, we can help and then <clears throat> excuse me after the uh, pandemic's over maybe some volunteer hours there as part of our service so yep all right <laughs> good to talk to you Jay yeah I feel like we could just keep the uh, keep the phone call going all night here but uh, all right let's uh, let people get back to work all right man later all right see ya Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffrithcheyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash goodpeople to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.